Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us they they be made perfect. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Amen. And I feel so privileged to preach on, on this passage today and what, uh, what great words. Uh, as you can see, we're in the middle of a series called The Journey and we're looking at the journey that another group of Christians made in their day. They were journeying in the first century through pain and through persecution, through loss of life and through loss of property to the extent that they become so beaten down by the brutalities around them. They were on the verge of giving up their faith in Jesus altogether turning their back on their, on their faith, on their church, on uh, their risen king. And what do they need to make it? What do we need to make it if we're in the same kind of 
predicament today? Well, what the writer of Hebrews presses them in us to see, of course, in chapter 11 today is that to make it from the wilderness, where we begin, to the city of God, where we'll end up, we have to live by faith. Live by faith today. That's what this chapter is all about. It's all about living by faith. And so I want to ask and just try to answer two questions today. What is faith? What's faith? And if it's so important, how do we get it? How do we get it? Now, before I begin, let's just uh, acknowledge a couple of, of things today. Uh, no matter where you're from today, this word faith probably has a little bit of a, uh, you know, causes a knee-jerk reaction maybe in you. Uh, if you're from a more secular uh, background today, skeptical background, you hear the word faith and you think, oh man, that's what I saw on that like TV show with those televangelists that time, right? With the, the faith stuff or, or maybe you think faith is just the, the tool with the vocabulary of the uneducated, right? Uh, or of the unreasonable or uh, if you're from by contrast, a more you know, conservative or moral background, you say, man, I had a grandma who lived by faith. She was just faithful when she sat in that rock or in that chair reading her Bible. Every morning, that's what it looks like to live by faith. Or maybe you're from a more charismatic background today and you think, man, I love this faith stuff, my miracle moment, right? I'm going to get my breakthrough today, man, money cometh, you know, all that good stuff. Well, what I hope you'll see today is that no, no matter who you're from, where you're, who you are, where you're from, or what you've been taught, I hope you'll see that by the end of our brief time in this amazing passage today, that faith, Bible faith, authentic faith, Hebrews 11 faith, is far more complex and far more freeing than maybe you've ever seen before. So with that in mind, let's begin and just ask, number one, what is faith? What's faith? All right, let's say you were to ask me, uh, Morgan, what's love? Right, what's love? What is love? Give me a definition. Well, I could either give you some words at this point, give you a nice verbal definition, or maybe I could come over when you're sick, right? Take care of your kids when they're sick, take care of you when you're sick, cook you a meal, hold your hand through the sickness, even maybe to the point of death. Both would be answers to the question, one's more helpful. One's more helpful. And if you'll notice here, the writer of Hebrews basically does the same. He brings up a topic of faith and he gives you far less in the area of verbal definitions. There are a couple, but he spends the majority, the preponderance, to use a big word today, the majority of the chapter giving you a definition. He's far less interested in telling you what faith is. He's way more interested in showing you what faith does. What faith does, and I think we ought to do the same. We ought to do the same. So let's ask, what, is, what's, what does faith look like? How does it show up? That's what the chapter's about. What does faith look like? I think it looks like five things here we're going to go through briefly in turn, and there are, of course, way more, but five is all I could shoehorn in to the time that we have. So here we go. We're going to do a brief list here. What's faith? What does it look like? First, faith looks like belief in a creator. That's where the chapter begins. Faith looks like belief in a creator. Now, uh, about eh, a week or so ago, one of my sons came home. My sons are go to this uh, public junior high, middle school here. And, uh, one of my sons said, Dad, there was this kid in my class. And he, he was moving around and he was talking around. He was going around the room and telling everybody that religion is a fake. Eighth grade. Budding, aspiring 13-year-old atheist, apparently. Uh, that religion's a fake, that God is a fake. My son said, I looked around, no one was saying something, so I said something. He said, uh, he said no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. 
Religion's not a fake. God's not a fake. And then he said, the kid said back, yes, he is. And my son said, no, he's not. <laughs> and the kid said, uh, well, where's your proof? Where's your proof? My son said, I didn't know what to say. So I said, well, where's your proof? <laughs> well, it's a pretty good comeback. Pretty good comeback. My friend, I got a friend named Robert. He's a pastor. He says, whenever you don't know an answer to a question, you just ask, ask the same question back. He says, he calls it the boomerang. You know, he just comes right at you and swerves it back. But he said, the kid said in response, when he was asked, well, where's your proof? He said, evolution. Evolution. Evolution proves there's no God. Well, what do we say in response to that? We've got to give a response, right? Give a response. Well, I think if I were in that situation, I had my wits about me, and I had a moment to think, I would have asked that kid in turn a different kind of question. I would have asked him, all right, let me ask you a question. How do you know if a person is good or bad? How do you know if a person is good or bad? How do you know if anything's right or wrong? How do you know, for example, that what that guy Stephen Paddock did from his hotel room, right? Is good or bad? How do you know if, let's say, what Harvey Weinstein did, you guys see in the news this week, what that guy did to all those folks in Hollywood, women in Hollywood, how do you know if that's good or bad? What about a guy blowing up a truck in an in a area of civilians in Somalia? How do we know if that's good or bad? There's a philosopher, a, guy, a Roman Catholic guy by the name of Alistair McIntyre, brilliant guy, and he asks a similar question to help you see the point. He says, well, how do you know if a radio is good or bad? I don't know if a radio is good or bad. He says, if you're getting mad and calling the radio bad, because when you punch the button, it won't open and close your garage door. Or if you get mad at it and call it a bad radio. When it breaks, when you're hammering nails into your wall. <laughs> he says, you lost the plot. You're barking up the wrong tree. And then he says, the only way you can know whether a radio is good or bad is if you know what the purpose of the radio is for. Right? And he says, so if the purpose of the radio, if you know the purpose, is to, you know, bring telecommunication frequencies out of the air to the device into your ear, and it does that reasonably well, you can call that radio good. Right? If you know the purpose. So what about people? What about people? How do we know they're good or bad? There's a, a doctor, a famous atheist guy by the name of Dr. Francis Crick. He's a co-discoverer of DNA, by the way. You may know the name. And Dr. Crick, just before he died, no friend of God, no friend of Christians, he wrote a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And these are the opening words to his book. He said this. He says, you, notice the scare quotes there as in you, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Huh. So Crick's saying the seen world is all there is and therefore meaning and morality are myths. They go out the door. They're not, they're not really real. And to the question then, is what Stephen Paddock did, is what Harvey Weinstein did, good or bad, right or wrong, he said, that's not even a question, bro. Not even a question. Because your feelings on the matter are just your molecules firing. Right. Uh, you may feel that murdering dozens of people is wrong, but he says that's just a feeling. You say, well, I know. I just know that using women like that is wrong. Murdering people is wrong. He said, no. He said, you're just a nerve bag. You're a water sack. You're here on accident. All that stuff is meaningless. You're no more than an accident 
of molecules. So let's assume for a moment, let's assume he's right for a moment. What do we, let's assume he's right. What do you do with that? Huh? What, do you, what do you do with that? That, that aspiring 18, or 13-year-old atheist is right. Uh, Dr. Francis Crick is right. What do you do with that? You could say, all right, all right. There's no right and no wrong. No good, no bad. Well, all right. That's the case. I'm just going to live for pleasure. I'm going to do me, you know. But C.S. Lewis says, go ahead and try, man. You can't even live for pleasure if there's no such thing as God. If you're a thinking person, he says this. Look, he said, quote, you can't truly be in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering that you believe that all the beauties of both her person and of her character are an accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms. Good luck telling your you know, spouse or significant other, you're only beautiful on an accident. You know, not really real. And your own response to them is a kind of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. You can't go on getting any pleasure from music, for example. If you know and remember, the air of significance is a pure illusion. What you're feeling doesn't matter. That you like it because your own nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. In the end, you'll be forced to feel the hopeless disharmony between your own emotions and the universe in which you really live. He's saying to really experience love and meaning and beauty and pleasure, if there is no God, you've got to turn off your brain and not think. Oh, but hear me, church, as Christians, as thinking people, we know that pleasure is meaningful, that beauty is real, it has meaning, that good and bad do exist, and therefore we can follow the breadcrumbs of that, that trail right back to our creator. Hebrews 1 says this, listen, by faith we understand, we think, we see, we know that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was seen is not made out of what was visible. You say, well, that's just a dumb ancient person. Didn't know science. No, he's contradicting the science of that day. The Greeks believed that matter had always existed. He says, no, it didn't. Matter began. God gave it life and breath and meaning. And therefore, because the universe was formed on purpose, that means your life today has purpose. Isn't that good news? And there are right and wrong ways to use that purpose. Let me ask you, what makes more sense of the universe? A world with meaning and morals or a world without? Hebrews 11 is showing us that not only is believing in a creator rational, but that believing in a creator is freeing. It frees us to have real meaning in life. It frees us to experience real pleasure and frees us to judge real evil. Only a creator can do all three. That's the first thing. Faith looks like belief in a creator. Second, here we go. Faith looks like now, here we go, listening to the oppressed. Listen, the oppressed. Did you notice he moved right from creation, not to Adam, but to Abel? Wonder why that is. Let's look. It says, by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. Let's ask, who was Abel? Well, if you don't know, Abel was the son of Adam and Eve. Abel was murdered by his brother Cain because of Cain's jealousy. And even though he's dead, Hebrews says of all things that you should see about Abel, it says, Abel's still talking today. His mouth's still running today. He's still speaking to us. What's Abel saying right now? Oh. James Burton Kaufman, a great commentator, says this, look, says, quote, the blood of Abel says, 
that God takes account of the injustices perpetrated against the innocent and that one day they will be avenged. Abel being dead yet speaks, his blood cries from the ground, not merely is, but the blood of all the innocents ever slain. God has appointed a day in which he will settle accounts and nothing can show the necessity of such a thing any more than the blood of Abel. No punishment of Cain could bring Abel back. He sank into the grave while the swift centuries fled. While Cain went out to build a city and continue his posterity in the earth. What about Abel? Abel's blood is saying, listen to me. Think about me. Think about those on the underside of power. Hmm? So what does it mean to be oppressed? Well, in the Bible, to be oppressed, it means to be someone who lacks the power to defend yourself against those who seek to do you wrong. It means to be someone who lacks power to defend yourself against one who seeks to do you harm. Abel's voice, therefore, is the one without power, who's run over by the one with power. Oppressors like Cain use their superior power to silence the voice of those with less power. This is asking us, will we listen to the voices of the Abels in our world? Abels in our culture. Well, who have been the ones without power in our culture? Traditionally, of course, people with color, right? Women, immigrants, the unborn, right? This is saying it takes faith to listen to their voices. Why does it take faith? Well, because the history of the world is most people don't. Most people don't. But can you see the brilliant the subversive thing the writer is doing here. He's saying the first thing you do if you're a person of faith is you believe in a creator. Great. But then he skips Adam, moves to Abel. Why? He's showing you the first thing people who believe in a creator ought to do by faith is to listen to the voice of those who cry from the ground. That's what faith looks like. Third, faith considers, this is a little more encouraging for you. Faith considers where our reward comes from. All right, here we go. Pause. Let's switch gears. Faith considers where our reward comes from. I want you to think for a moment about your life today in terms of all the things you do. Maybe you're a member here. uh, You've been coming around here from Mosaic for a while. All the things you do here to make Mosaic a great place. Perhaps the ways you volunteer, you give, you pray, you serve. Think about all the ways you, you serve your family. If you have a family. All the ways you change those diapers, right? Get up in the middle of the night to serve those blessings God bring out in your life. All the ways you serve your community or maybe the people at work. And then consider this thought. Consider that the person perhaps most honored by God in the Bible, besides Jesus, is nearly completely overlooked during his lifetime. Out of anyone the writer could have pointed to and said, that's a person who really pleased God. Who was it? He says it's a guy named Enoch. Enoch, what did Enoch do? We don't even know. (laughs) Is it he walked with God and then he was no more? It's meaning, it's saying he never died. Now this is a mystery to me. It's a mystery to the writers of the Bible. They don't even try to speculate as to why. It's kind of like they're just saying Enoch won, you know, life zero. You know, he wins. It says before he was taken, He was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, right? And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What does it mean to please God? Oh, to please God, this is saying, is to believe that your reward is God. 
To please God is to believe your reward is God. Two of, my, two of my three sons were having a conversation the other night, yeah, about school again. One of them asked the other, has anyone signed your card yet? Kind of walk into the conversation. Yes, one boy says, I've gotten four signatures on my card. How many signatures have you gotten on your card? The other boy says, zero. Super discouraged. He said, Dad, I've gotten zero signatures on my card. I said, what does your card even mean? I have no idea what that means. He says, we get a card we carry around at school, and the teachers see us doing something good. They give us a signature. They see us doing something bad, irresponsible. We get a signature on one side or the other. And he says, Dad, I know I'm like the most responsible kid in my class. I help a teacher, help my classmates. I'm never late. I try to help people, but I haven't got any signatures. He said, it's not fair. I said, you're right, son. The fair's in October. (laughs) Got that from my seventh grade science teacher. Sorry, it stuck with me. I said, son, no matter if people see, God sees. And we don't do things so that people will see us. We do things knowing that no matter what, God sees us. And especially when no one sees you, God does. And what you do in that moment, in the moment, in the gap between the time you do something, you think someone should see you, and they don't. And how you respond to that, that choice in that moment makes all the difference of the kind of person you're going to be in life. See, God in that moment, he's, he gives you the great pop quiz of life. What do you believe? What's more important, people see you or God sees you? Of course, my son says, of course, Dad, you're right, I know, you know, okay, thanks, you know. For us today, walking by faith means like Enoch, we place our reward, not in what people see, but in the truth that God sees, because he says God is a what? Rewarder, rewarder, rewarder. You can take it to the bank of those who come after him and keep coming after him, and therefore you don't need the opinions of people nor the cheap and rusty trophies of this life. Enoch didn't need him, and neither do you. Faith looks like, faith looks like believing, believing our reward is with God. Fourth, faith looks like living like a stranger at home. Look at the person of Abraham here. Verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive. As his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. Now, this whole phrase, there's a phrase here, it's kind of tricky to get into English, but the basic idea is saying this. It's saying, Abraham, catch this, lived where? At home, like a what? stranger. He was a stranger and at home at the same time lived like a stranger at home. And there's a, there's a term for that in English. It's actually the phrase, um, for someone who lives at home like a stranger, it's the word teenager. I think that's, um, <laughs> they live at home <laughs> like a stranger. I'm kidding. I'm getting free today. All right. Just kidding. It's really the term. Here's our term. It's for a resident alien. Resident alien. What's a resident a resident alien, if you're, if you're a resident alien, right, uh, you're living in a foreign land, right, but you're not a tourist, you're not a tourist, because your home's there, uh, because your home's there, you don't walk around in sandals with a camera around your neck trying to snap pictures of everything, you know the language, you know the roads, you know the restaurants, you're not a tourist. On the other hand, you're not a citizen of that place either. Your citizenship's in another place. You're subject to the rules of your new nation, but your neighbors think you're kind of strange. Why do they do that, they ask. Why don't they do that, they ask. You blend in some ways, but you totally stand out in others. 
This is saying like Abraham to walk by faith as a Christian person is to live like a stranger at home. To live like you're from a far country. Right here. Right now. Now, this produces an almost unbearable tension to be always at home, but never at home. How can we do it? If you've seen the excellent movie, a movie called Lion, you know, it's a true story about a little boy named Saru and set in India in the 1980s, and Saru is separated from his family at the age of five. Uh, He goes to work one night, he's separated from his brother, and he's accidentally transported thousands of miles across India to another place where they speak another language. He survives on the streets for a couple months until he's picked up by the police and he's placed in an orphanage. Then he's adopted by an Australian couple, and he moves there to uh, Tasmania. And uh, he grows up in their home and speaks another language, but he's from another place. But as a grown man in college, flash forward, as a grown man in college, he's overcome by the thought, he doesn't really know where he's from. Doesn't really know who he is. And he sets out to find the place and the family that he's from. And as his search drags on, he's so torn, he becomes so torn between two places. He begins to lose his relationships with all his loved ones. He experiences alienation on the inside. I don't know where he's from. Who is he? Who does he belong to? Where does he belong? Where's his home? He can't take it, and he begins to go crazy. He's living in one place, but he's from another. Oh, what did I, but what Hebrews is saying is that we are going to feel torn apart in this life like Saru until we see where our home really is, until we find home like Abraham found. What did Abraham see was his home? It says he was looking, what? Forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He saw, Abraham saw his home wasn't behind him. He saw his home wasn't underneath him. He saw his home wasn't around him, but his home was like this, before him, ahead of him. His home was really the heart of God. Think about the hymn, come on church. Oh God, our help in ages past. Our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Well, the hymn writer got it. God is our eternal home. And when you know where home is, You can live anywhere by faith like Abraham right now. Fifth, faith looks like breaking through. It looks like breaking through. Now, uh, we saw in the passage, if you're paying attention, you saw the rider. He kind of moved from, you know, going in first, second gear all the way up to, to fifth gear. Baby, he's cooking with gas now. He starts listing off all the supernatural ways that people living by faith did and could do. Look at this. He says, listen, people living by faith can, says, who through faith? What do they do? Conquer kingdoms. Who's that? Joshua. Who administered justice? Who was that? Samuel. Who gained what was promised? David, right? He gained the, the, the kingdom God promised. Who shut the mouths of lions supernaturally? That was Daniel. Quenched the fury of the flames? Daniel's friends. Women received back their dead. Who was that? Oh, the widow of Zarephath, the Shunammite woman in the Old Testament. Now, this is telling you, each of these received a supernatural breakthrough. An open heaven moment, a visitation from God in their moment. Something They did something they couldn't have accomplished on their own apart from the power of God. And of course, we love those stories. 
and we should. They're amazing, right? This, they're massively encouraging. Oh, but they also expand. It pushes out the definition of what God's supernatural power looks like. Think about it. This is saying sometimes God's supernatural power looks like the dead being raised to life. Looks like angels coming, shutting the mouths of lions. Sometimes it looks like a, like a, like a force field. You get in the fire protects you. It's amazing. But sometimes it looks, God's supernatural power looks like him working silently behind the century, behind the scenes for centuries, bringing a nation like Israel to the forefront. Sometimes God's supernatural power says looks like administering justice. God's power looks like good leadership, right? You leading well. Either way, this is saying the people of God though, when they live by faith, they should expect the supernatural to mark their life. Walking by faith means believing for your breakthrough, the miraculous. Let me tell you, supernatural is for today. I was born again when a man called me out of a crowd and prophesied about me, over me. Said supernatural things only an eternal, omniscient God could know. I was healed miraculously, instantaneously from debilitating back pain in a moment. My wife was there. We weren't married yet. My eyewitness for forever. Not why I married her, but... It helps. But do you need someone to shut the mouths of lions in your life? Hmm? You need supernatural protection in the heat of your moment. Do you need healing in your life? Call out to the God that's saying, who delivers? Who can bring the breakthrough? Walking by faith looks like breaking through. And yet, and yet, it says, there were others. And this is not only where the passage shifts, this is now, number two, where we see most clearly how we get the faith we need to live by. How do we get it? Number two, look at where we're taken, ultimately. Look at what the writer says. There were others who didn't make it. They were tortured. They refused to be released. They might gain an even better Resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, sawed in two, killed by the sword. These lived by faith, it says, but they didn't gain what they promised, what was promised. Now, commentators, many of them believe this is referring to a 400-year period in history in the intertestamental times between, if you know your Bible, Malachi and Matthew, where the people of God in those four centuries endured some of the harshest persecution they ever had to face. And the Roman Empire came in in that time and they conquered them. And there was one king who was particularly brutal, Antiochus Epiphanes was his name. And, you know, even historians who don't want to pass judgment, they all kind of say, well, he wasn't a good guy. This guy kind of brutal. And he came in and he conquered Israel. There's a face of old Antiochus. And the story I'm about to share with you is very brutal and graphic as well as the guy was a brutal king. Now, Antiochus used to take prominent families into the public square and call on them to renounce their faith in the one true God. He would call on them to blaspheme, to do something against their conscience, eat unclean food or meat, to show loyalty, fealty to him. And if they didn't, he would often kill those who wouldn't do it. In the book of 2 Maccabees from the Apocrypha, there's a story about a mother, true story, many, most people believe, a mother who had seven sons. Each son was brought one by one before the king, King Antiochus. He was told to renounce his faith in the one true God or he would have his tongue cut off, his limbs chopped off, 
and he would be thrown alive, roasting into the fire in front of his mother and brothers. And when that brother died, the king would turn to the others and ask them, one by one, what about you? The second Maccabees chapter seven says that in that moment, in the public square, the mother stood there and encouraged her sons to all die bravely. Quote, it says, filled with a noble spirit, she said to them, it was not I who gave you life and breath. It was the creator of the world who devised the origin of all things and who will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again since you now forget yourselves for his sake. The story says, goes on to say, when one of the sons, when it was his turn to face the king, went before the king and he put out his tongue and he held out his hands and he said, take them. I got them from heaven, and for God's sake, I give them up. But from him, I will get them back. Now, of course, I know on one end, it's hard to listen to. But on the other hand, the majority of the world, for the majority of time, including our world today, has lived one degree of separation from that. People of Hebrews, themselves staring that in the face. What's the ultimate source of faith for someone going through the trial of their life? Well, what kept the mother and their, these brothers, their sons going? Oh, the writer tells you this. He says, they were looking ahead to what? An even better resurrection. What's the better, better resurrection? It's this. See, as wonderful as it is for any miracle to ever happen, as wonderful as it was for those Old Testament women, for their sons to be raised, or for Lazarus to come back to life, Jairus' daughter to come back to life, wonderful it was for me to be healed, all those people died again. You're healed today, you may get something tomorrow. Your bodies are subject, our bodies are subject to decay, to death. But what that mother saw, staring into the face of death was this. What gave her courage to face her future was a better resurrection where those limbs would be reattached, where those tongues would be put back in place, and where their family would be reunited for forever. That's the better resurrection. And that mother, along with you, you can spit in the eye of the world. Give the world the finger, the thumbs up. you're a follower of Jesus because you have a better resurrection. You say, well, what proves that? Oh, hear me. It's the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the proof of our better resurrection. And if you say, well, that, that didn't really happen. Let me tell you, the burden of proof's on you, friend. Because what else could have begun the Christian faith? What, it could, could, what, if, what could have compelled Greek people, right, who didn't believe it could, it could happen at all, to suddenly turn and follow Jesus? What could have compelled Jewish people who believe there's maybe a resurrection somewhere at the end of time to drop everything now and follow Jesus when they had been conditioned for centuries not to? The only possible explanation is that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. And if you say, I don't believe it, it didn't really happen. I say, fine, you got to come up with an equally plausible historical explanation for why the Christian faith began and thrived. You say, well, I still don't believe it. I don't care. Let me tell you, just admit you've got a white European enlightenment-based worldview that predecides against the supernatural, which by the way, is the minority position of all the people alive in the world today. And if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, which it did, that's where faith comes from. 
seeing it's where faith comes from. And here then is what we can do now. Oh, the writer tells us, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, oh, they didn't get their promise. They haven't seen the better resurrection. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance our race. Now, you got something today. You're going through it. You've got a race. How do you do it? You fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? He was raised from the dead. He's a pioneer and perfecter of your faith. He's the author and the completer, the archagos, the prince, the captain of your faith for the joy set before him. That's you and me, our salvation, our redemption, our resurrection. He endured the cross. He scorned at shame. He said, see you, fellas, set down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition that you won't lose heart. Who is Jesus? Oh, he's the one. He created the world. He's the ultimate Abel, the one who identified with Abel all the way to the bottom. He was the ultimate Enoch who placed his reward with his father. The ultimate Abraham. He truly lived in exile in our world. He's the one who broke through the pitiless walls of this world and released now his supernatural power into his church. He was the one who killed, was killed for all of it, but lives now. And who can empower you? to run your race by faith today.